My name is Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast. I report on Maryland political news at a minordetail.com. A Minor Detail is a startup media outlet dedicated to bringing Marylanders a multimedia experience. Our platform is painstakingly fair. We're nonpartisan and independent. We're not beholden to donors or big advertisers. We're interested in the facts in every story. We're interested in finding the truth. This year, A Minor Detail and its podcast turns five years old. A Minor Detail covers trending Maryland political news. We keep politicians honest, we don't play favorites, and we certainly don't bullshit you. We encourage you to support local news, and it's up to you to decide how to use it and how to make sense of it. Now, let's talk about the news. Gentlemen, um, I appreciate you coming on tonight to talk about a serious issue that's occurring in state government. Mind you, I think it might be, I don't know, I think it might be one of the top issues besides COVID and then Maryland public schools happening. And I know that there's a lot of folks out there that want y'all to reconvene to go back into session. And I believe that's up to your elected leaders, to Senate President Bill Ferguson, or I, actually the governor has to call it, right? He has to call a special session or approve it. I think technically there's two ways to convene a special session. The governor can call it or the legislature can petition for it. Mm-hmm. I'm not a hundred percent on this, but I'm not sure the latter has ever actually happened. Oh, okay. Well, interesting. I think that's right. So I think, you know, if there was enough support within the general assembly to do so, that, that could theoretically happen. Oh, well, I, I'd be interested to see. I know that there's some progressive activists out there who were on the show on Wednesday night, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but they're pushing for that. But if you're listening now, a minor detail podcast is live with State Senator Clarence Lamb of District 12 and Mark Corman, Delegate Mark Corman of District 16, Bethesda. And Del- uh, Senator Lamb is uh, from over in Howard County, which is our neighbor. What is that? To and the- Baltimore County. And Baltimore County. So a neighbor to, was it that the, the east? The east, southeast, maybe? Of uh, so I've got Southwest Baltimore County, but I'm the neighbor to your north, I guess. North. Right? north. north. Okay, yeah. my direction is not. Well, I just go up 29. That's all I know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you're following along, like and subscribe to a Minor Detail podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, a slash newsletter you can sign up for, which is our daily morning newsletter or whenever I feel like putting it out. Sometimes there's not enough content, um, or there's sometimes where there's state politics, uh, where there's 10 things going on at once, and uh, I just don't know how to have, I don't have enough bandwidth, but I'm pleased that this is episode 279. I don't know who's going to be episode lucky number 280, but, uh, you know, I, won't, I wanted to say, and Corman sort of spoiled this before we even got on there, but before we begin, gents, um, let's talk some Maryland sports history. You know, a day that occurred when I was Nine years old. I was a fifth grader at Lincolnshire Elementary School up in Washington County. So I'm, I'm interested to know where you both were when Cal Ripken broke Luke Garrett's consecutive game streak. And I'll just never forget that night in September 6, 1995. Nine years old I was. <laughs> Senator, after oh. you. <laughs> um, I was a freshman in high school. So. <laughs> <laughs> Make I had to feel- back calculate there very quickly. So, yes, yeah, so the freshman in high school, back oh. up in Pennsylvania. So I was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Very cool. Oh, I, know- I was uh, 13 at Julius West Middle School and uh, in District 17, not District 16. And uh, I just I remember watching the game in my parents' bedroom with my, with my dad. So it was uh, 
a huge, uh, a huge moment. I grew up an O's fan, so it's, uh, yeah. it was a huge deal at the time, and it certainly stuck with me. Well, you know, an ode to my friend Len Foxwell, who's a diehard Nationals fan. Uh, you know, they've they've been doing okay, but I got to tell you guys, I, I I will always root for the Orioles, being that it's my home team. But I'm a lifelong Red Sox fan, and this year we're not doing so well. So you should be a Hagerstown Suns fan. Oh yeah. Have you guys ever been up to a Suns game? I have, yeah. Yeah, I have not yet. You check it out. Is there any? Is there any minor league baseball in Howard County? There is no minor league baseball in Howard County, unfortunately. Oh well, nope. Hagerstown Suns. It's a great organization. They're always telling us whether you know we're always worried whether it's going to be cut or it's lost or something. But they've been hanging on by a thread, and uh, you know we could talk baseball all night, but. You know, I believe even ba- I believe baseball is probably slightly more interesting than state politics, but maybe not necessarily this story. And I know baseball players, they're paid well, but maybe not as well as Roy McGrath. Um, <laughs> and I got to tell you, I at the last minute, I, I sort of made a mistake and I thought up long and hard today. And, and I didn't want to bother Mr. McGrath because I know that now he's being represented by an attorney. And most attorneys would tell, you know, like Corman over here, who's an all-star attorney, he would probably tell his client, hey, you probably shouldn't go on a podcast or you probably shouldn't write an op-ed in the Baltimore Sun or you probably shouldn't end up in the, the B section on the front page of the Washington Post. So I did invite him on at the last minute, which was my error because I really should have invited him on earlier in the day. So he only had a few minutes to think about whether or not he would come on. But I did come on. I did invite him. If he wants to come on, he's, he's welcome to it. Um, however, I don't suspect that he will. So why don't we just start from the beginning, and we'll unwind this story in chronological order. On Thursday, August uh, the 13th, I believe, or yeah, August 13th this year, Pam Wood, uh, fantastic Baltimore Sun reporter. She she reported a story that Governor Larry Hogan's new chief of staff and new as in of June, uh, he wa- he left the job, of course, at the Maryland Environmental Service, and he was given a six figure severance package, and it wasn't it wasn't uh, anything. It wasn't just a, a regular number, but it was two hundred and thirty-four thousand dollars. That's a that's a payout and a lateral move from the Maryland Environmental Service over to uh, the governor's office to become his chief of staff after Matt Clark left. And my, my first question to you is: you you probably knew Matt Clark. What what was Matt Clark's style working with him? What and if you had interactions with him, be interested to hear your perspective on that. So my understanding is, and I I did not have a chance to work with him all that closely, but I think he was a straight shooter and, um, you know, was always up front with uh, where the administration stood on things. I think, um, you know, obviously after many years in the administration, I think it kind of wore thin and and just, you know, out of tiredness, I think he decided to move on is now at at University of Maryland Medical System. But, you know, I think the impression with, with Matt was that he was always a straight shooter and a good guy in that way. Yeah. Yeah, he was quiet, Delegate Corman. I didn't. You didn't hear much of him. He's... Well, he certainly wasn't making front page news like this uh, <laughs> at the governor's office. I, you know, most of my interaction with him uh, was around things related to the Beltway in 270, which Ryan, you and I can 
uh, spar about later. But that's where I really interacted with Matt. Um, you know, in the legislature, we see uh, we used to see a lot of uh, Chris Shank, you know, former uh, legislator from from Washington County, who was the chief legislative officer. He was very active and engaged with us. Now, Kiefer Mitchell, who of course is now acting um, chief of staff, Andrew Cassidy, you know, guys like that are the ones at least at my level, sort of rank and file, you know, member. Uh, that's who I would deal with through the governor's office for yeah. those. For those yeah. folks. And then legislative liaisons from the different departments and agencies um, who obviously uh, spend a lot of time working with us as well. So let's begin. For anyone who doesn't know what the Maryland Environmental Service does, Roy McGrath was there. I believe he started in, what, 2015, shortly after he, Governor Hogan was elected. He started there in late 2016, okay. I believe. He, um, he had some other jobs with the Hogan administration before uh, taking up the reins at MES. Uh, what does MES do? What are their responsibilities? What purview is it under? Do they get taxpayer funds? Senator, break that down. What and really, what do they do day to day? So, um, Maryland Environmental Services provides a lot of core functions to state and local governments. Ninety-five um, percent of their funding is actually uh, from contracts or fee-for-service programs that are engaged with state and local governments. These services range from things like dredging to water and wastewater management to environmental land surveys, um, air monitoring type programs, a lot of core environmental programs that um, you know are, are an extension of state government. Um, and so they've been functioning since 1970 as an independent state agency. Um, and then two years later brought formally with Indian DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, and then since the early 90s as a, as a formally recognized independent state agency. Oh, okay. So they, they work with municipalities and their funding, is it, is it taxpayer? How, how are they funded? Where do they get their resources? I'll get you one go. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. those fee-for-service contracts Clarence was, uh, Senator Lamb was describing. So 95% of their funding comes from state and local governments. Okay. So Montgomery County, for example, might pay them for help with a, you know, a wastewater treatment facility project. That's the hypothetical uh, example. So that's where the money uh, comes from. And it's sort of like an enterprise fund where they, you know, retain most of that money to pay for their operations. Although there have been times where they've helped the state by basically shifting funds back. But during the Great Recession, there were several years where they participated in the state personnel system furlough, for example, to basically credit dollars back to the state. That the state could pay MES less for some of their uh, contracts. Uh, their executive director and board are appointed by the governor. Uh, when the governor submits his budget, MES is included uh, in that uh, in that submission. So they're a, a bit of an odd duck. Although they're not the only odd duck in state government, we have some other ones that are um, also not like the Department of Aging or the Department of uh, of of, uh, of Transportation, but are sort of more quasi standalone uh, agencies. But again, leadership still appointed by the governor, uh, legislative oversight still supposed to be provided by the legislature. And in the case of this agency, 95% of their revenue comes from government contracts. Hmm. Okay. So uh, do you know what their budget is per year? I think it's about $200 million annually. 200. And I know that there's over 800 staff, correct? Yeah, there's about 850 staff. And, and a lot of these staff members have been there for several years, in, including the former uh, deputy director, who you guys talked to. We'll get to that later. 
who testified before your committee. I want to get your reaction. When you first learned about this story that was in the Baltimore Sun, but prior to this story, did you all have any idea that government officials in this administration and maybe previous administrations, when they make lateral moves inside of the administration, were you, were, did you all have any idea that they were getting these lucrative payouts uh, for not actually leaving the system, Senator? No, this was shocking in many ways. I mean, it was just unfathomable when we heard the news that he was taking a severance payment for voluntarily leaving another state agency for another state job, that it was just unconscionable given the state of the uh, of Maryland's finances um, in a pandemic where we were furloughing workers, slashing budgets left and right for someone to actually actively ask for, request, and also receive a severance package of a quarter million dollars on their way out the door to not only to a run-of-the-mill position, but to become the governor's chief of staff, was just mind-boggling. It was hard to imagine the level of hubris here involved in this decision. Uh, Delegate, over to you. The state documents show that McGrath's position at MES, they paid him a salary of $233,647 a year that by the fiscal year that ended on June 30th. When he went over to the governor's office, there seems now to be some confusion about this timeline. Governor Hogan reportedly told Roy McGrath that he's got to fix, he's got to figure this out or fix this issue prior to coming over. So it, it appears that the governor knew about this, especially given the text message that we saw um, between him and Matt Clark. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so first of all, just to put the number in context, he basically got himself an extra year of pay right, out of his severance. So he was making about the same as he been making at the governor's office or was planning to as he was making MES. And he was getting himself an extra year of pay for basically flipping jobs. And there's a broader context of a lot of other questionable activities that have come out uh, about his, uh, his tenure that we could talk about. But, um, you know, in terms of the timeline, uh, to quote the, the, the co-chair with Senator Lamb of the uh, Fair Practices Committee, Delegate uh, Eric uh, Barron, um, both what uh, Governor Hogan is saying, or Mr. McGrath are saying, can't be, they can't both be true. Uh, Mr. McGrath is saying the governor approved this. He sanctioned it. He said it was okay. The governor uh, said in a press release and a couple of times in press conferences that uh, he didn't know anything about it, had nothing to do with it, and acted like he had never heard of MES before. Uh, so there's a lot of inconsistency there. And part of what the purpose of the uh, hearings are is to figure out what the story is. And unfortunately, Mr. McGrath uh, has declined uh, to show up. Frankly, if you were to call in now on this show, I'd recommend to Senator Land that he and I remove ourselves because if uh, if Mr. McGrath isn't going to come and testify before a, a joint committee of the legislature, I'm not going to engage with him on a on a on a media platform. He should be uh, held accountable at a at a joint committee. The way the board of directors was, the way the new executive director has held himself to account, and the way the former deputy director uh, came before. So yeah. he needs to come and present his side of the story to the to the joint committee. 
Have you? He's had no qualms about going to the media, right? So he's wrote an op-ed for the Baltimore Sun. He's corresponded with Sun reporters and Post reporters. With me, they've been yeah. able to get with you. Yeah, he's <laughs> talking. Get quotes out. Uh, he's but not with the legislative committee that has oversight over this issue. Yeah, look, I reached out to him uh, when the issue was happening, and it was it was sort of like I'm going to talk to you on background, and I agreed to it, but then. I, I got frustrated with him a few weeks ago, and I said, look, I, I can't do this on and off again stuff. Either you come on the record or you don't, all right? Pick one. I, I, can't, I can't comprehend this. Now, he's, he's hired a defense attorney, a pretty well-known one, and we'll get to that. I mean, he's, and, and gentlemen, he's not, he resigned then on Monday after the story broke on Thursday. The Senate president and the House Speaker, they made some comments that were released on Friday, uh, the, uh, I think it was the 14th. 14th. Or, yeah, and basically the House Speaker, Adrian Jones, and Senate President Bill Ferguson said that it was shocking. They called for oversight into the matter, which, of course, would fall to your committee, and they said that this shows a clear lack of judgment to assume the role to the closest aid of the governor of the state. Equally troubling, they wrote, however, is the role that Maryland Environmental Services played in today's news. This was a statement was released. Then a board member, Joseph Snee, and I'm quoting from Pam Wood's Baltimore Sun article. Um, he's a Hartford County lawyer who chairs the board's Human Resources Committee. He made the motion to grant the severance package, and Snee quote, express the appreciation of the board for Mr. McGrath's service, according to the minutes. Maryland Environmental Service, it's over in Millersville, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, there's so much to this story, and we're going to break it down. It's very complex. There's a lot of moving parts. But my question is, if, when politicians or officials resign and Roy McGrath ultimately resigned on Friday and even into Saturday he had put up some resistance he had pushed back I think he was blaming the media he was saying that it's basic you know to quote Ted Cruz a nothing burger uh, he didn't say that I'm just kind of paraphrasing his his response but I am I was confused and I were you confused by his initial statements that he really wouldn't talk to media, but he was making statements on his Facebook page. Senator, is that common, uncommon? And what say you? So it, at the very least, certainly seemed inconsistent. You know, I think, and, and it struck me as how unmedia savvy this response was, right? This was the governor's right-hand person to deal with any sort of crises or um, communications issue or other, you know, statewide concern that would come up, that he would be the person counseling the governor on how to deal with these types of issues. And yet when it came to he himself, you know, ensnared in this huge storm of controversy, he really seemed tone deaf as to the proper way to respond to this, that instead of, you know, acquiescing and acknowledging that there may have been some sort of, um, you know, bad optics to this whole situation, um, and maybe even more, but you know, instead of acquiescing to that, um, he was really strongly pushing back and saying that there was nothing wrong with this. MES was a private business, and you know, this was entirely proper. And and delegate, 
his position basically from the outset was that it's it's standard practice for these types of government agencies to issue severance packages. Is that an argument that you can buy? In my view, that wasn't really what he was saying. What he was saying is it's standard practice in the private enterprise. And he was basically comparing what he was doing to uh, running a private enterprise. And a great example of this is he's the first executive director that uh, anyone was able to identify of this agency who uh, labeled himself CEO. Right. So he seemed to think he was working at a Fortune 500 company, not an instrumentality of the state of Maryland. It's very uh, a lot of his statements are just very confusing. For example, um, in his uh, op-ed in the Baltimore Sun, he said, maybe if we knew um, then what we know now about the economy, I might have done things differently. Well, we did know then what we know now about the economy. This was late May. This was well into the quarantine and the uh, uh, fiscal crisis and the economic crisis and the global health crisis. So that timeline just doesn't make any sense. I think he told you in one of the text messages you shared on Twitter that he didn't use an MES car, but then he asked to have that car transferred over to his gig in the governor's office. Well, if he's not using the car, why would he transfer it over uh, to his gig in the governor's office? There's a lot of confusing things in his media response. I mean, it's not my job to give someone um, media advice, but he should probably listen to Len Foxwell talking to you about uh, how he should respond to a crisis in one of your previous episodes where he talked about um, how you should and shouldn't engage the press in situations like this. Who we should be engaging with is the uh, Joint Committee on Fair Practice, which has legislative oversight responsibility of the situation. That's fair. And he, knew, and he also knew full well that the state was under an economic crisis at that time. I think this was May. We saw unemployment you know, of, of you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Marylanders all of a sudden being out of a job. You know, there was even documentation that we received from um, from the governor's office and from the uh, from MES that shows that they were concerned about being able to sustain operations and funding within the agency itself. So they clearly knew they had a um, you know a fiscal crisis too here in the state. So to say that they didn't know and that the situation were different had they known that the pandemic was as severe as it was really just doesn't hold water. I mean, you can look at the minutes of the meeting where the vote occurred. And earlier in that meeting, they have an update on the fiscal situation because what was going on with the uh, economy and, and government revenue as a, as a result of that. So there's no question that we did know then what we know now about the state of the economy. Who's really, though, and it, this is an optics problem, right? You, you, you're, you're giving someone a lateral move. You're, you're giving them a year's worth of salary. It's a lot. $233,000 is unfathomable to a lot of folks that I know, and you probably know, growing up in Western Maryland, that that money was a, a pipe dream for someone, you know, a, a kid from halfway Maryland. And that's a lot of money. And I'm not saying that Roy McGrath is was unqualified for the position. And I, I do want to talk about some of the personnel and just a bit inside of the agency and what his staff are saying. However, what I don't understand and what I think most of us want to understand is why would the board approve it and why would McGrath, knowing the political implications of accepting it, go forward with this? It's not like it was going to be kept a secret. Come on. It, it The Baltimore Sun unearthed this. And if it was only a matter of time, did he think that it was – and I don't know because he's not here and he hasn't answered this question. But, I mean, that to me would seem like a serious political problem on the surface. Delegate? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the board's role, I mean, this is actually a, a pretty significant concern because their line has basically been, we thought the governor okayed it. And first of all, that may not be true. That may have just been a, a misrepresentation by Mr. McGrath. 
But even if it is true, is the board supposed to follow the governor's direct command in that way? Or are they supposed to show a sort of fiduciary duty to the agency and to the state and say, okay, but right now we're facing a difficult fiscal situation, or he's really just making a lateral move in state government. Does it make sense to give him one of these payments? So I do think the board has a little bit of, uh, uh, of an issue. And I think uh, Senator Lamb in particular has talked a lot about how that needs to be um, restructured. And for me, I'm also very concerned about some of the other odd duck state agencies that I referenced before. We need to make sure that they're not engaging in uh, similar practices. Uh, this idea of severance for lateral moves within government I just think it's totally inappropriate. I think it doesn't pass the smell test, whether you're from, you know, uh, Western Maryland, mm -hmm. Southern Maryland, Central Maryland, or Eastern Shore. I mean, like anybody looks at that. Well, that's certainly... Says, what, what are we doing here? That's very fair. And, Senator, over that weekend when the story was reported, it really hit on Friday morning, and that's when the, the state of Maryland began to collectively say, oh, my gosh, this is a lot of money. We have to ask more questions, and that's when your... Uh, your elected officers in the Senate and the House, respectively, began to comment. Over the weekend, did you guys have any idea that this would be much more than what it, maybe what I originally thought it was going to be? Did you have, did you think he would survive this? Personally, I didn't, I didn't think he would survive this because I think the optics of it certainly really just looked really bad. Um, you know, I think... You know, it would have been more easily survivable had he resigned immediately, um, you know, provided some sense of contrition to the whole situation and, and provided the money back. You know, now, you know, here we are. But I think I think to your earlier question, um, you know, and I haven't spoken to him, obviously, either. But my impression of this is that he just had a real sense of entitlement. Right. And it was a sense of entitlement, whether it was the MES vehicle that he wanted to bring with him was a sense of entitlement of, you know, using the title of CEO or calling this a private business so that he could reap the rewards of that. Um, it was entitlement along with greed. I think it was really just, you know, wanting to get as much money out of this as possible. And, and maybe that was his background or history coming from a lot of other private sector jobs. But this is a state position. He's moving to another state position. And so, you know, that sense of entitlement and greed really, I think, fueled this, at least from looking at it from the outside. And it also just made him have blinders as to how serious this situation was. Uh, we learned then later the Baltimore Sun reported uh, from an article on August the 25th. The headline is on top of severance, Maryland Environmental Service paid director 55K in expenses as he left to lead the Hogan staff. This $55,882.32 um, was made out in the days after he left MES, according to the Baltimore Sun. They included reimbursements for hotels, airfare, rental cars, and meals for several conferences and events. Many of the expenses, the Sun reported, are listed without dates, but some date as far back as January 2019. And then some of the expenses are for meals with other MES employees and other state government. When you first learned about that, plus there was a $5,000 in tuition reimbursement, that's um, – for a CEO or the executive director, that's a lucrative deal. That's a lot of money in state taxpayer funds that he's receiving. Did you all have any idea that this was happening, Delegate? No, and even if you accept the – I'm sorry, Senator. No, good. Good. Even if you – for some reason to accept all the expenses as legitimate and having looked through the documents, as, as, as I know Senator Lamb has as well, they do not appear to be all legitimate. But even if you accept them as all legitimate – 
Some of them do date back uh, actually even further than you said. Some of the expenses that were filed in uh, June went all the way back to late 2018, including a Costco membership. Uh, there's also other expenses that seem to be indirectly being reimbursed him through another MES employee who, for example, put in about a $15,000 uh, Harvard Leadership Program reimbursement uh, for Mr. McGrath to attend, a program that was taking place after Mr. McGrath left MES. So it's unclear why MES is paying for a program that their former executive director was participating in after his departure. So even if you were to accept the sort of baseline expenses as somehow acceptable, which I don't think you should, he clearly violated all sorts of um, policies and processes about how you get expenses. I mean, Ryan, I know you 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 travel for work. Sometimes you have to go all around the, yeah. the state. If you have to put a receipt in for something, you can't sit on that receipt for a year and a half and expect to get there. No, you right, and to file it just as you're going out the door too, um, you know, because it, this is not chump change. He was putting in receipts that were totaling over fifty five thousand dollars that were just coming in right at the end there for things that were backdated for four years. And so, you know, I think it's just remarkable that he, you know, and he kept all these records, right? It's not like he just all of a sudden created these from thin air. He kept all these records, didn't follow internal policy, which was that these reimbursements need to be filed within five days with the director of finance and then all of a sudden filed you know hundreds of these out the door and had it not been for the committee asking for these documents and asking mes to to cough up these records we wouldn't have known this either we wouldn't have known the details of what he was spending it on everything is as you know the delegate mentioned um to things like seven dollar um sundays to overnight stays in annapolis when he lived either in waldorf or in edgewater um, you know, it was just remarkable when you look at the amount of spending. He was using it as I think the delegate was quoted in the post as saying this was a gravy train. Uh, I wanted to bring this up that I received, and I, I'm just reading this um, from Matthew Sharing, the former director of operations for MES. Uh, that it says, your tweet was brought to my attention. MES provided no cause for my termination. All employees are contractual employees, and my contract was terminated without cause. I would encourage you to correct the information. Sincerely, Matthew, I had heard from two sources inside of MES that he was terminated with prejudice and... They mentioned a trip to Israel with uh, Mr. McGrath, and Matthew Sharon further wrote that my termination letter specifically states that it was without cause. I would appreciate a prompt correction to your inaccurate tweet. Three MES executives attended the largest international water conference in Israel last fall, as did many other American executives, public and private sector, at the request of the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C. It was a very productive trip. And I followed up with that. Could you send me your termination letter? I asked him why you believe, I asked him why he believes he was terminated. And I explained that I talked to other sources and I'm happy to offer him an on the record interview. And he hasn't responded since August the 24th. What do you guys make of that? Clearly, Mr. Sharing has been a buddy of Mr. McGrath for a while. I think they used to work together at uh, Mr. McGrath, Mr. McGrath's prior employer, which I think was the National Multi-Housing Association or something of the like. And so what came forward last week um, during the hearing was that um, Mr. McGrath actually created a position just for Mr. Sharing 
that that position that he had, the director of operations, didn't exist before Mr. Sharon got there, um, that it was a brand new position. Um, he installed him in that position and gave him a lot of leeway to be able to, um, you know, spend money um, to the point where I think uh, the deputy director, Beth Whiten, had mentioned that there were expenditures for conferences that she was actually told to not question if they came from Mr. McGrath or Mr. Sharing, um, that that was just off the table. And so it's remarkable. I think that's the other reason why we asked Mr. Sharing to show up at our last hearing as well. And he also declined. He did, uh, and Delegate Corman, do you anticipate, do you think that he declined because he's been told to decline? I, or that he's doesn't want to answer questions. I mean, and by the way, are when they are showing up to these hearings, they have to swear to tell the truth. Correct? We don't. Um, there's no. You don't take an oath when you're uh, testifying for the legislative uh, committee. At least not uh, not okay. thus far. I don't know why he's declined. Um, I think in his case, uh, and Senator Lamb, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he just did not respond to the uh, outreach from our uh, joint committee staffer who reached out asking. Uh, him to uh, participate. Um, I, you know, I can't speculate what his reasoning is, but again, instead of litigating this through the press, he should come before the Joint Committee and present his uh, side of the story. Let me just say on the travel, I think if you pull out any individual trip, you might say, oh, I could see how that could make sense for MES to participate. Right. Oh, it's a it's a green business conference. Oh, it's a Chamber of Commerce meeting. Oh, it's the it's WasteCon, the, the largest wastewater conference in the world, and we do a lot of wastewater projects. It's the sheer number of them, the volume, that I think just seems totally out of whack. You have to pick and choose. I would love to go on a trip every weekend to a different baseball stadium where we're allowed to do that. Again. But I don't do that. My budget doesn't allow that. My life doesn't allow that, right? So I get to go on one or two trips a year. That's how it is in, in, in the world. You don't get to go to every national, international conference in Las Vegas and Phoenix and Salt Lake City and Israel and Italy, uh, in Cambridge and in Disney. He went to the Disney Leadership Institute, Mr. McGrath, not Mr. Sherry. Um, you just don't, you have to, you have to be more selective in how you're spending um, what amounts to taxpayer dollars. Oh. And the Disney Leadership Institute was a $6,000 trip. <laughs> and, and again, you did anybody in the legislature have any clue? I, I, I'm just surprised that this was not unearthed earlier. And if it was, it could have become a serious political problem for the governor. Yeah, as I said, I didn't know you know this was going on. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm on the uh, the subcommittee that oversees the budget of MES. I wouldn't have even thought to ask: Is anyone receiving a year's pay in lateral severance? Right. Is anyone uh, going on trips uh, of this nature on such a regular basis? Is anyone having their private lunches in Annapolis reimbursed supposedly as MES business? It just wouldn't have occurred to me to ask that as a legislator. It does now, obviously. And as I said, we have a lot of other agencies that are sort of uh, uh, instrumentalities of the state like this that are all now going to have to withstand this kind of uh, scrutiny to make sure this is uh, uh, not a pattern of practice that we'll see elsewhere. Yeah. It, so I'm I'm trying to understand from the outside, from a media perspective, the culture inside of MES because I've had several sources reach out to me inside of MES who requested anonymity, but talk to me on background or had emailed me and they all pointed to several of the issues that were brought up in your committee oversight hearing for the General Assembly's Joint Committee on Fair Practices and State Personnel Oversight. It's a lot of words. <laughs> um, 
And the employees that I talked to did not defend Mr. McGrath. In fact, it was more of the opposite, that they figured that something like this would have would happen. They were discouraged by Mr. McGrath's leadership. They said that he was missing in action, that he was hardly ever inside of the Millersville facility, and that he was not necessarily a a great boss. And now Mr. McGrath, in fairness, he pushed back and talked about sending birthday cards and, and whatnot. But uh, I, the, the, the sense that I have is that there was a culture that was just a little, not just a little bit, but a lot off, that there was something awry inside of MES. And now that this is, the lid has been blown off of what is going on, more and more employees are coming out and talking about this culture, including the former deputy director who had a career there for 32 years. And Senator, it just seems like they really didn't like working for Roy McGrath. What do you, what do you make of that? You know, I think that that's in alignment with the general sense of entitlement that we seem to see from his behavior. I think he was, it seemed like he was an aloof manager, was not really there on site quite all that much. I mean, Ms. Whiten, the deputy director, even said that he used to take the back stairs to avoid talking to people. He would end, uh, you know, popular services or programs internally within the, uh, you know, within the agency, um, even complaints down to refusing to allow, um, you know, company cars or the, the agency cars that were parked in the front lot to be parked there they weren't washed. And obviously, MES, because of the type of programs and services they offer, oftentimes have very dirty um, agency vehicles. And so he was one that seemed very much um, you know, concerned with the image of him as a CEO and the impression that the public impression that they had of the agency obviously did a lot to you know, do um, a lot of PR work, had contracts with two PR firms, um, you know, went through a large expansion of the headquarters very concerned about image, but seems like it was less, much less concerned about the internal operations um, and, you know, of, of the internal controls of auditing and, and, and accountability within the agency. Delegate, what I was going to say is what I find most bizarre is that Governor Hogan is now basically saying, I don't know what's going on over there. I don't, I, that to me strikes at the core of it, it, Governor Hogan seems like a pretty hands-on guy, and he seems like a guy who controls media, and, and I say that in a positive way, that he has controlled his narrative. He's, I mean, back in 2018, he de- he defined his opponent right away. I know he had a lot of money, but it, he seems like a careful, cautious guy for the most part, but to make a statement that you really don't know what's going on in one of the major government agencies, whether it's quasi-government or not, as it's been dubbed in the, the media and elsewhere, that to me is is somewhat serious. And you can please finish your other point, uh, Delegate. Yeah, well, I mean, I was just going to recommend to you and, and, and anybody watching or listening to look at Senator Carter's questioning of uh, former Deputy Director uh, Wharton during the hearing yeah. this past week, where she really walked through step by step some of those uh, culture issues that uh, you were describing and Senator Lane was describing at the agency. In terms of the governor, I mean, look, it, it's concerning. I mean, you can't pretend that this is some agency you've never heard of. 
when that agency has been at cabinet meetings. And we have records yeah. of uh, Mr. McGrath and his successor participating in uh, the governor's cabinet meetings. Uh, you can't pretend you've never heard of this agency when you appoint the uh, executive director. You can't pretend you've never heard of this agency when you appoint members of the board of directors. You can't pretend you've never heard of this agency when the consolidated budget that comes over includes MES uh, in it. So it just doesn't pass the smell test that uh, he uh, is sort of acting like he's never heard of MES before. Um, but again, whether or not he, you know, what he knew about the severance and, and so on, you know, that's the, the inconsistency between him and Mr. McGrath's story. And that's why Mr. McGrath needs to come before him. And I want to make a point to say that the Baltimore Sun reported that Hogan, he, Governor Hogan disavowed any involvement in pushing for McGrath's severance. He had acknowledged McGrath told him that he had to work out some financial issues before leaving MES to join the Statehouse team. McGrath seemed upset by that, the Sun reported, according to the text messages. And I'm just going to read this to you. The statement yesterday is being misinterpreted. McGrath wrote to Hogan, referring to the governor's August 25th statement, can you please say something about us discussing severance, that it was okay for me to handle with MES only what we agreed. Without your support, it looks like I misled MES. I did not. Hogan said to the Sun that he did not respond to that text message, but instead alerted his chief counsel. And for him to do that, the governor of the state to alert his chief counsel, that was serious. Do you think at that point, Senator, that Hogan knew that clearly this story is not going away, that it's a problem, and that this, and that McGrath could, could I don't know, maybe land him in hot water as the media and your committee is beginning a, a, a serious probe? I think he's beginning to recognize that this is a very serious matter and could land the administration in a lot of hot water. I think the, the text message that you bring up really comes down to the core fact of what did the governor know in terms of the severance package beforehand? Um, and did he either explicitly or implicitly consent to that um, severance package? Or was Mr. McGrath lying to the board and misconstruing what the governor did or did not know? Um, you know, that's the real heart of the question here. What did the governor know? And what did Mr. McGrath know? Somewhere in there lies the truth. And there's a lot of obfuscation going on here. But that's what we're trying to get at the core of. What did the governor know about the severance package? What did Mr. McGrath convey to the board? And what occurred between their conversation? Mm. And it's interesting that even now he is standing his ground. Mr. McGrath is standing his ground contending that the governor knew and that they had an agreement in place from that text message that you just yeah. read um, that occurred after the first hearing. Mr. McGrath is still pleading to the governor for help, even in spite of all of this. Uh uh, yeah, I mean, and that's certainly his right, but he's saying to the governor in a text message, look, this is this is causing me a lot of problems. This is, uh, you know, I, and when the governor doesn't respond to the text message of his former chief of staff, yet he's still texting his other chief of staff, I, I'm just curious as like what the relationship was, delegate. I mean, what, I, I mean, whew. I don't know. Look, they've been friends for a long time. Mr. McGrath was with Governor Hogan on his, you know, prior attempts at, uh, at running for Congress yeah. what, 30 years ago. So they have a long time relationship. I don't think you can pretend that uh, he's not uh, uh, friendly with the governor, doesn't have a longstanding relationship with him. But, you know, I think Clarence described well the sort of dilemma 
of, you know, who knew what and when and, and, and what the true story is. And, you know, we just got to try to sort that out. And again, it's, it's also ensuring that this is not a pattern of other uh, quasi-governmental, to use your term, uh, agencies, that this is something that is not going to be repeated uh, in some future administration with some future um, instrumentality of the state. It's important that this um, teach us something that can be applied more broadly than just um, figuring out who knew what and when in the McGrath Governor Hogan story, but avoiding this kind of problem yeah. in the future. Well, and, and it's a very yeah. serious matter to be lying to his board too, right? If that's the if that's the governor's contention that he did not approve of this, that Mr. McGrath was lying to his board to get them to approve of this generous severance package, because that's what's also conveyed in email messages and in text messages, that it wasn't until the board heard from Mr. McGrath saying that the governor anticipated that he would be getting this severance package that they decided to finally sign off on that because they felt very uncomfortable with this too. Um, that, you know, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be able to get to the bottom of this. So it's, it's a real challenge because if it's not the fact that Mr. McGrath lied, then it's the fact that the governor actually approved of this severance package and his statements in the public seem to be running in the opposite direction. Well, that's, yeah, and I'd be interested to also talk to directly to some of the board members, but let's talk about these hearings. So far, your committee has held, what, two hearings, correct? Correct. And, I mean, just the stories that are coming out of this, um, including the most recent one, that was reported by WTOP and uh, Josh Kurtz, MarylandMatters.org. I mean, there is some extraordinary reporting that when you both were sitting in this, and it was Zoom, it was a Zoom hearing. You know, I, I get the sense that the new executive director, Charles Glass, he had when he came into the agency, he he had some serious cleanup to do, and I'm as he's rooting through and walking through. The the practices and the conduct of uh, – it, it looks like he – Charles Glass, who's, by the way, a, a pretty reputable guy – not pretty, but he's a reputable guy. He's a Ph.D., and he seems – I mean, he's a straight shooter. Uh, and I get a sense that even he is shocked and alarmed, especially when McGrath had asked him to basically cover him by writing a letter which to me seems unheard of for a former director to come back as the chief of staff and say, look, I need you to, I really just need you to cover me here. That's what it felt like, and that's what the optics look like. What do you, Senator, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what happened, that, um, you know, per Mr. McGrath, Mr. or Dr. Glass's own testimony, he had reservations about the press release that went out from mm -hmm. MES on August 15th. And if it were up to him, if you believe his testimony, he would not have had that press release go out. But that press release was really an effort that was combined between Mr. Sharing and also Mr. McGrath, who was no longer at the agency, but was still actively involved in a lot of the agency's, uh, you know, doings. And so, um, you know, Mr. McGrath essentially told Dr. Glass to send out this press release um, you know, had a heavy hand in probably drafting or writing a lot of this press release um, that contends that it's a private entity, that it was wholly justified, you know, that, um, you know, he did have um, the right to have the severance package 
all of that was contained in the press release that Dr. Glass did not feel comfortable, um, you know, sending out there. And so, you know, the influence that Mr. McGrath continu continued to wield over the agency was concerning, given that he was no longer the executive director. This was an agency that, you know, was experiencing the heavy hand of the governor's chief of staff. Yeah, I, I want to bring up a column that I'm sure both of you have read by Josh Kurtz. The title of it is Who's Minding the Store? And it's on MarylandMatters.org. It was released on August the 26th. And Josh Kurtz opened his column writing, that was sneaky of State Senator Clarence K. Lamb to bring Steve Krim into the conversation. Uh, Lamb, a frequent critic of Hogan administration personnel practices, presided over a hearing Tuesday that can only be described as one of the political low points of Republican Governor Lawrence J. Hogan's five-and-a-half-year tenure. And then he goes on to talk about the first hearing, and he, Kurtz wrote that it was the, the, the first Tuesday hearing was a disaster for McGrath, and what emerged from the, the three-hour hearing is that McGrath, as he was preparing to leave, negotiated this handsome settlement, and then the board members, uh, he, he goes into that. I'm talking about Kurtz. Um, that brings us to personnel of the administration. Just last week, we learned that one of the personnel was dismissed after what you both saw were some really controversial um, Facebook postings. And I'm talking about Mac Love, who was at the Governor's Community Office of, of Community Initiatives. And he did a press conference last Monday to defend himself. But here's the question, and, and I just, and this might be slightly off topic, but I think it speaks to the personnel is that you know who's in the administration, you understand it's a political appointment, and if you're being, administration officials have an obligation. I mean, they're, they're working for the taxpayers. And when you enter a state job like that, everything that you write is subject to public scrutiny, regardless if your Facebook is what you think is private or not. So I just want to understand is what the hell is, who's he hiring? I, I'm serious. And I know that that, I just want to be fair. It's like, who is this? Who is the governor hiring? How does he not know that Mac Love is writing some of these things that many people found offensive? Some even referred to him as as racist. So, and that also brings it's like, what what is going on in this administration that we we should get to the bottom of? Because if there is a personnel problem, it can't just be. I, I, to me, it it seems like well, if it's just one or two people, okay, but. Doesn't that beg the question to see what else is going on inside of the administration? Well, first, I'll send our lambs and more than anybody to see what's going on with the administration's yeah. personnel issues. So I'm going to see you in one second. I do just want to give the governor credit for firing um, Mr. Love. You know, the guy's an at-will employee, and I'm glad the governor had the will to fire him. I think that was the right yeah. uh, the right decision. But I'll, I'll kick it over to Senator Lamb, yeah. who's been very involved in these issues uh, his entire tenure in the General Assembly. Right. Senator? Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Delegate. Um, the, you know, I think this is a very serious issue, right? It speaks to the broader issue of the politicization of state government positions. Um, you know, I think we, we recognize that anyone that is elected into that role as the governor has the, uh, you know, ability and also the responsibility to appoint, you know, qualified, well-intentioned individuals into these positions. And what we've seen lately is a pattern that's remarkably concerning, 
when it comes to individuals like Mac Love, who seem to have statements that run counter to the entire mission of the governor's office of community initiatives. When we have uh, individuals like um, Mr. McGrath, who seem very entitled um, to uh, you know the perks of his position. When you look at uh, individuals like Steve Prim, who seem to have a very flimsy uh, resume when it comes to serving in a fairly high position within the Department of Budget Management, and even the entitlement of you know Karen Salmon, the state superintendent, of seeking another forty thousand um, dollar you know pay increase to be able to just stay on in her role for another year in the middle of a pandemic while school systems in the state are struggling. And so, you know, I think it really lends to a pattern of behavior that is concerning that I think we do need to look at a little bit more closely and, and potentially will do that as a committee as well. Um, because, you know, I think it speaks really to the title of Josh Kurtz's article, who is minding the store? Where is Governor Hogan on all this? You know, I think, and, and I would uh, respectfully disagree with you with your earlier statement. I don't think he has been quite as detail-oriented as the credit that he gets. And I think this, these types of personnel matters are not ones that he really sinks his teeth into. And as a result, you're seeing this now finally starting to catch back up with him in year six of his uh, tenure, um, particularly as, you know, other matters seem to be distracting. So, you know, I think there's, there is a real, very real question here, but who is minding the store? That's fair. And I know that Steve Krim is a talented political operative. He's someone who clearly understands how to win, at least bring a Republican to victory in a purple state with an overwhelmingly Democratic um, uh, General Assembly. But it feels you know, Steve Krim joining the administration, I mean, it kind of feels like Steve Krim would essentially be, you know, equivalent to a Kellyanne Conway or a Steve Bannon almost. And I'm not, I don't want to compare them because Steve Krim is, I think, very different politically than those two individuals. But, I mean, Bannon and Kellyanne Conway are political, I mean, truly political people working inside of the White House, or at least they did because they're now gone. But to me, it's like that's – that's interesting. That's interesting that 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 occurred. And, you know, Kurtz even wrote in his article, maybe Krim has hidden budgetary skills that no one knows about. And he may well be over a DBM in person or virtually examining numbers. But instead of financial figures, he's more likely to be studying voter registration turnout and election numbers as a prelude to Hogan's desire to jam the Democrats during the next round of congressional and legislative districting, redistricting. Excuse me. Let me ask you both this: in your time, in this, in the investigations, in the the oversight hearing, has anyone or any Republicans come out and said, "Well, look, Hogan's a Republican. He's a popular governor. These guys are Democrats. They're going to follow the Democratic line." Has anybody accused you of playing partisan politics? No. So first of all, there on the committee, a, there's one Republican House member and one Republican Senator. It's actually a relatively small committee for Annapolis. You know, our committees are usually um, 20 something people on the House side. Um, so this is a much smaller committee. And both Delegate Greist and Senator Eckhart have, you know, asked some questions and engaged in the process. Um, but I'll also say, you know, the governor's office, they provided documents, um, you know, upon request. MES under Dr. Glass has provided documents upon request and attended the, the meeting and participated. I don't I don't think this is a 
partisan exercise. I mean, I think everybody sort of recognizes a legitimate issue here. I think Governor Hogan's uh, condemnation of the of the payments from Mr. McGrath demonstrate pretty clearly that it's a uh, a bipartisan disdain for this kind of uh, this kind of payout. I'll say about Mr. Krim, I don't know him. I'm sure obviously he's a very effective political operator. I think the issue is the job he's been brought in to do. You know, if the governor wants to bring him to the second floor to serve as a communications or political advisor, that's the governor's right. He has a budget and a staff to do that. But he's brought this guy in ostensibly to be a sort of shadow budget secretary uh, and given no indication of this guy's uh, expertise or what value added he's bringing in a six-figure job during a budgetary crisis. And Secretary Brinkley, the current uh, secretary of the Department of Budget Management, refused to answer questions about that at a budget hearing a few weeks ago when he was sort of asked uh, by my colleague, Delegate Solomon from District 18, about what this guy was going to be doing and how he was going to be uh, doing it. So it's, uh, it, I find the, the role he's playing uh, pretty concerning, uh, given uh, his lack of familiarity with the issues. The governor wants to hire him to the Department of Planning to look over maps. That They can do that. But this, this guy has so far uh, shown no uh, knowledge of the budgetary matters he's supposedly going to be advising the, the, the Department of Budget Management on. Uh, fair point, Senator. Ryan, Ryan, let me let me add this too Please. that this really should be a, a nonpartisan issue. Oversight sure. is a really important issue for the General Assembly. There are three main tools that we have as legislators. One is to legislate, cr- create, and pass bills, and we like to do all that. We have to pass a budget. We have appropriations authority to do that as well. But the third arm of the the third leg of the stool that we oftentimes don't use and don't use quite as effectively is oversight and making sure that the states, agencies, and departments are doing what we actually asked them and paid them to be able to do. It's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I served under Congressman Henry Waxman um, in his oversight office um, years ago, but I think these tools are really important regardless of who is in office, Um, whether it's a Democrat, a Republican, independent. We need to make sure that we have full accountability and transparency over the dollars and the things that we're asking our state agencies to do, and that's a nonpartisan issue. So oversight needs to be... Um, and we'll have proper oversight over a Democratic administration when they're there as well. True. And, you know, look, if you, we, we shift over to the federal level, there's no one better who was willing, really, really willing to do the oversight into the administration than Eli- the late Elijah Cummings. And he took a lot of heat. I think that's why you saw President Trump attack Baltimore, Baltimore City, uh, and, and Elijah Cummings personally referring to him and well, I, I'm not going to repeat it. I don't even want to give it credibility. But I, I think that's when, when administrations are, you know, especially this administration at the federal level are investigated, you know, I, I agree with you. It, it should be nonpartisan and it is. But we know that partisan politics, you know, one says, oh, you know, they're, they're, they just want oversight. They're, they're doing this for political reasons. I don't see any of that in this case, at least from my observation. Senator, I'm, I'm interested to hear this the most recent uh, committee hearing where the former deputy director, is it Beth Wooten? Is that how you say her name? Am I? Uh, Wooten. 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 Yeah. That to me, and I read the entire article, there is some really interesting points and some alarming information that was relayed. She talked about McGrath, as we said earlier, showing little interest in working with MES clients, we're getting to know the state's agency employees. She described a secretive leader who frequently worked off-site. Most times um, they didn't know where he was, that women employees were judged more harshly. And that's a very serious personnel 
problem, she said staff, if they were to make a mistake, he would never ever forget about that and sometimes would write them off and not have any interaction with them, and that was hard to see. McGrath was very focused on image. She talked about uh, you know, uh, the CEO uh, position, and when MES as director of communications resigned, two outside PR firms were brought in to replace them, and employee morale was poor during his tenure. When you were listening to this in real time, were you shocked? What was your reaction to this information that you heard? Yeah, I was shocked and, and dismayed by this. This is an agency that does provide a lot of important functions to state and local government. And to have these types of allegations come forward now meant that they've been festering over many, many years, right? And so it, it really calls into question, you know, I think the, the um, decision-making of the, the governor and the appointments office in appointing him, A, into this position, but then also appointing him to become the chief of staff this was not someone that was unknown to the governor's office or to the governor himself. This was not an unknown person that just came out from nowhere. This is someone that he had known um, for many, many years personally. And you know, yet, despite all of this, it either meant that they didn't do proper vetting to see and find all these concerns that occurred while he was at MES and then brought him and elevated him up to the chief of staff position to really be the right-hand person of the governor, be the the one who enforced and carried out the governor's um, intentions is remarkable to be to have him in that position in spite of all of these problems. And that it, it just strikes me as incredulous to believe that there was no earlier indication from uh, you know the vetting or the appointments office process to have identified this beforehand. And it calls into question that process too. Delegate, we know that Annapolis is a small place. Maryland, for well, it's not a small state, but it's not as big as some. And we know in state politics, information travels really quickly. It, it, it kind of irks me a bit that we didn't know about this, or at least if we did, it was kept quiet. But I, my point is, is that if there was, if something was not all quiet on the Western Front over there in Millersville, we would have, we should have heard about this. And have you ever heard any rumblings about it? Have, has anybody kind of said, hey, you know, this McGrath is really, his employees don't like him. There there seems to be some problems. It's just like, we didn't hear about this. And I think if we did, it would have been reported. But this must have really been kept low key. What do you what do you think, though? I, mean, I think it, it gives us a lot of questions to ask many agencies, a lot of hopefully lessons learned. But, you know, the thing I've heard about MES in the past, and the legislature actually responded to this, was a lot of concern among the rank and file employees about how the place was run, how they were paid, their benefits. And so they actually came to the General Assembly and requested that we extend collective bargaining rights to MES, which we did maybe three years ago now, Delegate Young's legislation, and I think Senator Rosepep on uh, Senator Lamb's side of the shop. Although back then, Senator Lamb was the lowly delegate on the House Appropriations <laughs> Committee. When we passed that. Uh, and so we extended those collective bargaining rights. And I think what happened as a result of that was MES um, did some things to improve uh, rank and file uh, staff benefits so that they would not go down the collective bargaining path, so that right is still there available to them. So we've heard some issues before from sort of MES rank and file about how the place is run, but nothing um, like the sort of hostile workplace uh, uh, issues that uh, Senator Carter was able to bring out uh, in the hearing uh, last week. I have a question for you, and then I'll, I want to follow up with uh, Senator Lamb, but uh, Delegate Corman, you're an attorney. He's Mr. McGrath has now hired an attorney, Bruce Marcus, 
He's hired a, vet- a veteran defense attorney um, and his associate, Sidney Patterson, of the Greenbelt for Marcus Bonzib LLC to represent him. What does this mean? I mean, I don't want to speculate why a, a client hired their attorney. That's, you know, between them and their uh, attorney. Our job is not to sort of prosecute a legal case right now. It's to provide legislative oversight. And so that's, you know, the role I'm trying to, uh, to play here um, and trying to understand from a legislative perspective what happened and what we need to change to make sure it doesn't uh, happen. Uh, happen. Senator, in the future, are, are we slated to have additional hearings? On this topic? I think all options are on the table at this point. I think we do feel the need and the urgency to get to the bottom of this. There's still, as Delegate Corman mentioned, a lot of unanswered questions here that we really just can't get answers to unless um, we hear from Mr. McGrath himself. And so, you know, I think there are a lot of question marks that are posed out there that are still concerning. And we do need to have some of these answers, not only for accountability and for transparency, but for any reforms that need to take place at MES. And clearly there are probably some that need to take place, particularly with how the board is structured and how it functions. Um, and without his uh, perspective, without his uh, you know, knowledge and what he can convey as to what happened on his way out the door, we're gonna be in a difficult spot to try to get to the bottom of this issue. And so that, that core issue that I think we brought up at the top, what did the governor know and what did Mr. McGrath know and what did they convey to each other is really still at the heart of the issue. And I think everything that we've seen up to this point still leaves that question unanswered. Has your committee asked the governor to testify? We have not. Do you plan to? You know, I think we can get to answers without having to um, ask the governor to testify. I think it's it's a very rare occasion that the governor appears before legislative committees, although not unheard of. Um, you know, I think there are still additional steps that we can undertake to try to get to the answers that we need as part of this committee's oversight process without having to call the governor before the committee. Okay. Uh, has the gov- But you you have said earlier in the conversation that the administration has turned over documents and are you content or at least um i don't know what how you would call it or or or, cat, or characterize it but what has so far their transparency been with your committee the administration that is they've been remarkably forthcoming with documents that um we have asked um through multiple requests for a series of documents and they have turned over uh, willingly and voluntarily as much as that, you know, they contend that they have on it. And so they have been very forthcoming with uh, the materials. I think it reflects the nature and the, the seriousness of their concern about the allegations that are at play here. And so I think they want to be forthcoming and recognizing that this is not a partisan witch hunt. This is really just to make sure that we have proper oversight and transparency over a state agency in um, making sure that they uh, you know, act in accordance with the law. And so um, that's why I think they've been very forthcoming with materials. We certainly appreciate that, of course. Delegate Corman, is there any way that the committee can compel Mr. McGrath to come testify? So I'd actually have to cede to the committee leadership on that. I'm just one of the members. So okay. uh, Delegate Perrin's not here. So I guess that's Senator Lamb in this case. But uh, <laughs> sure. I think there's a variety of options they're looking at to make sure we can uh, get to the bottom of this. Right. And uh, I mean, guys, technically, he if he does show up and he could have counsel with him to advise him what to say or not to say. Um, but I'm assuming that there is additional uh, 
pro- there's a, an additional process coming down the pike here that it's not going to stop with this. But I have to tell you, reading this September 2nd report um, in WTOP and then Josh Kurtz's column and other reporting from around the state, this is a very serious issue. It's a very serious issue because not only it seems like there's a personnel problem inside of state government, but you had someone who is not willing to come and be transparent. And there is questions about trips abroad, about how finances were spent, about what kind of operations were happening inside the agency. And I mean, I think this goes to the crux of of whether or not people trust in government. And if you if you ask the question to the public, do you trust your government? I think a lot of people are going to say no. I mean, and, and this is another example of why people see government as a um, people who work in government sometimes as a out you know, the elitists or just kind of a step above because they can get away with these things and do these things that seem like it just shouldn't happen. And I, I don't think the public is on Mr. McGrath's side. I haven't seen any, I haven't really seen anybody defend him. And I don't know if what you're, you're hearing, but I think a lot of people are really upset about this. I would just contrast Mr. McGrath's lack of um, openness with the Joint Committee to other people who are no longer in state service who uh, did willingly come forward. Beth Wynton, we've mentioned a couple of times, uh, as well as one of the board members who resigned from the board. Uh, but even after his resignation, he still came to the uh, first hearing we held and presented his side of things. So I think it's a, a pretty clear, uh, it's a pretty clear contrast. Uh, and even even Dr. Glass, too, the new director of MES, has been much more candid and you know honest in the uh, you know deficiencies within the agency, his priorities, what he would like to see fixed and addressed. You know he recognized right off the bat that this is not a private. Uh, business. He's not using the title of CEO. Um, he wants to rein in, um, you know, some of the expenditures that seem to have gone amok during the prior tenure of Mr. McGrath. Um, you know, so there have been a lot of folks that have been willing to come forward to account for, uh, you know, some of the challenges that MES has seen. But Mr. McGrath is not one of them. Uh, does the General Assembly plan to take any legislative action in the wake of of this information being? publicly relate and, uh, and with respect to the committee's hearings. Delegate? Yeah, I mean, I think you'll undoubtedly see uh, some type of uh, legislative action, hmm. um, you know, from relatively minor things, like for, forgive me, not, nothing is minor, uh, Ryan Minor, but to, to, to relatively narrower things, for example, uh, for a number of years, I've worked with um, uh, your state senator, Cheryl Kagan, on uh, transparency legislation for some of these sort of offbeat state agencies that aren't quite within state government and making sure they're more transparent and posting their agendas, live streaming their board meetings, things like that. We're going to try to add MES to that uh, to that agenda as well. So that they have to do what the State Board of Elections does, what the Maryland Stadium Authority does, uh, what a few other, uh, the Public Service Commission does, what a few other state agencies that aren't quite normal state agencies have to do in terms of posting their agendas and live streaming their meetings. That's a relatively narrow thing. I think you'll see much broader reforms on the MES front. Uh, and then maybe some other agencies as well as a result of what we've learned, uh, both in the media, thanks to the great reporting of the Baltimore Sun, the Post, you know, yourself, Maryland Matters, and so on, and then the, the hearings uh, uh, as well. Well, I give a lot of, I mean, truly the the credit goes all to, to, to Pam Wood and the Post, and they've uncovered, I mean, look, this is why the journalism is so important 
in this age. We we would have never known about it had the media not talked about it. And it really bothers me when government officials criticize the media or lob insults and call it fake news because this is this is not only serious, but this is detrimental to whether or not people trust their government. And if they can't trust their government, then we all have a serious problem. Uh, d- Senator, do you see in the future, and as Delegate Corman just talked about legislation, do you see legislation perhaps coming down the pike that would el- basically eliminate these, these severances? You know, I think I think all options are on the table. I think we're still doing a full-on investigation to understand what occurred here. There's still, you know, there were hundreds of pages of documents that were provided to this committee that we're still reviewing and, and potentially even more documents that will be forthcoming. And so I think it's something that um, is, is probably too early to tell us exactly what type of legislative measures that we are going to undertake. But I think undoubtedly, as, as the delegate mentioned, um, you know, there's certainly a need for reforms here, and maybe not just of MES, but to take a closer look and, a, and scrutiny over these other independent state agencies as well. There are a few dozen uh, of them, um, you know, in, in various capacities doing different things, um, you know, but all written into the state statute. And I think all of them probably should have, um, you know, another eye at to understand their function, their purpose, and how they're structured. Uh, and as we wrap up, Delegate Corman, if you could address Mr. McGrath tonight, what would you say to him? I would just tell him to come before the Joint Committee and we can uh, address each other then. That's that's what he needs to do. That's what others in his uh, position would do. That's the right thing to do. Uh, stop trying to just litigate this uh, through the media. Yeah. Senator Lamb? Uh, I would mirror the same that Delegate Corman just to appear before the committee, but also add just to tell the truth. I think the truth will come out in this case. The truth is somewhere either with Mr. McGrath or with the governor, um, and we will eventually learn the truth, and it's a matter of time. So it would behoove him to appear before the committee and to tell the truth as to what happened. I think we all expect that that our, that our officials, our, our representatives, and the staff working for the administration, that we get to the bottom of this and we understand how to prevent this in the future. That's the goal. There was some shocking takeaways from a media perspective. There was some shocking takeaways from these hearings. I, I'm glad that you did it, and I'm, I'm happy to see that former officials who worked inside of MES have come forward and talked about this openly and honestly and explained the culture, which I think you're going to – I think now that will be more heavily spotlighted because I want to know what's happening and people need to feel comfortable and confident to come forward and not face retribution. That's, that's awful if that's, if if that is occurring in any government agency. So I I appreciate you both coming on. And I know that this is some, this this is heavy content to talk about, especially on a Labor Day weekend, but still we, we do need to get to the bottom of this. um, And I do hope that Mr. McGrath comes before your committee and I hope that uh, we resolve to ensure that we can make government as open and honest and transparent as possible. And that's one of the goals of this podcast is to hold people to account and to ask hard questions. And again, I did ask Mr. McGrath, albeit it was late, to, to see if he would join us. And yes, I guess you guys would have had to excuse yourself had he had he come on. I could put you in a breakout chat room. Uh, 
<laughs> you guys could talk baseball. So, um, well, I, I think that we've covered a lot of material tonight, but I guess my final question, I mean, is there any news that is coming down the pike? If, a minor detail loves to break news, so if you want to break any news tonight, I'm all ears. <laughs> If you guys know anything, I I'd be happy to put it out there before Labor Day weekend. You know, for before Labor Day. Senator Lamb would know more than I what's coming up. Yeah, I, I the think. Joint committee. I don't think this is the last that you've heard of this issue. I think there's more to come. Um, yeah. You know, there may even be more to come in the following week or weeks that are coming up ahead. But to your last point. I think if there are other individuals and in, within MES or other state agencies that are concerned, you know, I think we, you know, have demonstrated the fact that we do care about oversight and feel free to reach out to us or our committee um, with any concerns that you might have, whether it's related to MES, Mr. McGrath, or other issues that pertain to state agencies. These are very serious matters, and we do want to get to the bottom of all these things. Yeah, and I, I think that's so critical. We have to People have to feel comfortable coming forward, and they have to know that their job is secure if they do talk. So uh, that's 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 key in, in, in any facet. So, well, gentlemen, I'm glad that we could have this discussion. I really appreciate your transparency, and I thank you for the first time, Senator Lamb. You know, Corman over here, he's a pro at this <laughs> podcast stuff. He's on all these pod, and 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 I don't know, and I, I shouldn't say this because you're a physician, uh, Sen- Senator Lamb, but, you know, I will I will um, tattle on Corman that we smoke some cigars and every once in a while, but it's very occasional. So. Very occasional. <laughs> yes, very you know, occasional. In moderation, right? And, and as long as it's in moderation. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, I appreciate your both uh, your time tonight, and thank you so much for for coming on and talking about this. I will be interested to to follow up at some point and uh, and learn more as as you discover new tidbits about this uh, evolving story. So Delegate Mark Corman of District 16 and Senator Clarence Lamb of Howard County's District 12, thank you for for coming on. Any parting thoughts on really anything that's happening in the world? I know that both of you are are, are good Democrats and you're supporting uh, former Vice President Biden, but I have to tell you, watching the news over the last couple of days, it was very disheartening to see what the president was reportedly said in the Atlantic, what was reported by the Atlantic. I was very disappointed, um, especially because I have two grandfathers who are service members. Um, one, one grandfather was career Air Force. Uh, he passed away in 2009. And my other grandfather, who's a 95-year-old World War II veteran, um, that that hit hard. And I don't think – and people can criticize – journalism and reporting and anonymous sources, but some of the biggest political stories of our country was reported by anonymous sources. And to disparage the military in that way, and I have no, I, based on the reporting, and I really don't have any doubt that this president said it, given his remarks about the late Senator McCain, I was really disappointed in that. And that that one hurt because our, our men and women who serve in the military they deserve our utmost respect, and uh, they certainly have earned that. You don't need anonymous sources with this guy. He always tells you what he's thinking. He told us what he thought of uh, Senator McCain's service yeah. uh, five years ago. Unfortunately, it didn't matter to, to a lot of the voters. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's clear he'll say anything or do anything to get himself reelected. And you know, I think we've seen that obviously, obviously very concerning. And so I think the election will be closer than people think. I know that's not what people want to hear, but that's, that's why people need to get out to vote. And I want to thank you for your efforts, too, to 
uh, ensure accountability among elected officials is a very important matter. And, and you do cover a lot of ground, uh, you know, not only on this, but other serious matters that pertain to the state as well. So thank you. Well, thank you, Senator. And thank you, Delegate. Sometimes I, I get some pushback. But with that, you know, I've get a, we're growing as a, as, a, as a small startup scrappy outlet that began five years ago. And I got to tell you that we, we have a lot of fun doing this. And um, we get we get rowdy sometimes on our political panels, and I always get feedback. Uh, Delegate Corman will text me and be like, oh, "I heard this," but Corman, I got to get you on here sometime soon to talk about 270 and my my traffic nightmare that I not lately, you know, as as Ryan, people. We're getting along so well. Come on. <laughs> no, I I know I I I said I, I I we should get you and Rich Parsons on here to talk about uh, traffic issues. Always happy to talk to you and Rich. No, I appreciate that. Well, gentlemen, I hope you have um, a wonderful Labor Day, and I uh, hope it's uh, it's it's great weather out. I hope it stays around. So. Um, Enjoy it while it it lasts. But thank you again for coming on, and uh, I wish you all the best, and I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Keep up the good work. All right. Thank you. Okay. So that was Senator Lamb, Clarence Lamb from District 12 in Howard County, Baltimore, and Delegate Mark Corman from District 16. Thank you to them both for coming on and talking about a serious issue regarding the MES, Maryland Environmental Service, and Roy McGrath. Appreciate their transparency. I appreciate the committee's work. And I will keep covering this as best as I can. Um, So I hope you're having a a wonderful Labor Day weekend. My wife and I took our kids to Solomon's Island yesterday. We practiced social distancing while eating outside at the Tiki Bar in Solomon's, and we went. We walked around, and then we went to Point Lookout State Park down in St. Mary's. And if you haven't been there, it's a phenomenal state park. Definitely check that out if you ever want a day trip, wherever you are in the state of Maryland. So, well, you can check me out online at aminordetail.com. Please visit a minor detail podcast at aminordetail.com slash podcast a lot of minor details here and make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and you can subscribe and sign up by visiting a minor detail.com slash newsletter and i spell my name look m-i-n i'm trying to point to it m-i-n-e-r yes some people think that it's who've known me for years still say m-i-n-o-r when it's clearly minor but that's okay as long as they uh now, they could say a lot worse, and they have. So I hope you have a wonderful and safe and happy Labor Day weekend. Please wear your masks. Please wear your or practice safe social distancing. Wash your hands <laughs> and, uh, and just be safe. Uh, Maryland has gone into phase three. Montgomery County, where I live, is still in phase two. And be smart. Again, wear your masks. It's not a political statement. It's a, it's a statement that shows that you care about other people even if it's uncomfortable and for many of our frontline employees who are truly the unsung heroes they are wearing masks for 12 or 13 hours a day you can wear a mask when you're heading out to ihop or denny's so please do that i'm ryan minor this is a minor detail podcast thank you so much for listening and i'm sure we'll be back soon i'm hoping to uh to keep following the story Take it easy. Hey, it's Ryan. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to a minor detail podcast through iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, 
iHeartRadio or virtually any available podcast directory. And you can find a minor detail on the web at aminordetail.com. I am interested in your feedback. Email me at ryan at aminordetail.com. And please go ahead and give us a like and subscribe on Facebook and Twitter using the at sign. That is at a minor detail with an E, not an O. That's it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you around.